Welcome back to the 110th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why our representatives in government are afraid of term limits, how the Democrats are able to keep their party in line so efficiently, and a final article talking about a cognitive bias that you may have heard of before, but kind of goes into it. And I think it explains an interesting part of our politics nowadays. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So in a few different podcasts, we have discussed term limits before. And, you know, the improbability that they're actually going to be implemented. But if you were just to set up a system of term limits, or you were the ultimate authority when it came down to what we have to do when it comes to term limits, what rules are you setting up, what barriers are you putting in place, are you saying they can't lobby after five years, are you giving them three years in office, are you giving them six years in office if they're a senator, are you giving them two terms if they're a congressman, what would your rules of the road be? Throw it down in the comment section, I'd love to hear what y'all have to say. All right, so our first article comes from National Review. Politicians shrink from term limits like Dracula before a cross. And I I do love this title because it is so true. And it has been brought up before. I mean, if you remember, I think I've cited this before. Ted Cruz and AOC, I believe it was two years ago at this point, were coming together. They were coming across the aisle. You have one of the most Christian Republican representatives in the Senate. And then you have one of the most liberal, progressive representatives in the House. And they're coming together, and they're going to discuss term limits. Nothing ever came of that. They both got a little bit of press from it. And they both talked to each other and then to the public to gain a little bit of favor from people. But nothing ever happened. So let's really discuss why term limits are so scary. And I've labeled this section the old, the untouchable, the stuffy, referring to all the people that are currently in our government that would not like term limits. Quote, almost every day we get a new reminder that we are increasingly governed by elderly, out-of-touch professional politicians who have constructed an incumbent protection moat around themselves and therefore can't be dislodged by voters. Maryland Senator Ben Cardin just announced that he will leave office next year at the age of 81. He began his political career in the state of Maryland legislature back in 1966, a full 56 years ago and before the first moon landing. Both his father and uncle served in the state legislature. His uncle retired in 1966 to make way for the younger Cardin as his replacement beginning in 1967. The New York Times has called on Diane Feinstein California's 89-year-old senator to resign, noting that her being sidelined from the Senate business since February because of the shingles is holding a key votes in a closely divided body. Feinstein also began her political career in the 1960s in San Francisco and has increasingly been viewed as confused and forgetful by colleagues, end quote. So this highlights two things. We have an elite class, and, you know, I will 
kind of scale back that language a little bit, we have a political class that is extremely elderly. And there are, of course, some benefits to that. When I bring up this conversation with other people, they ask, do you want people that are inexperienced? Do you really want to put in a really strict term limit so that by the time people really become accustomed with how Congress works, they then have to leave office, meaning they can't necessarily be as effective, they can't build those ties over time. That is a valid criticism, or at least pushback against the argument. But then why not make term limits a little bit longer? Why not make it four terms for congressmen and three terms for senators? That gives everybody enough time to get up to speed with what's going on, how they can influence the ongoings in politics, and build some connections so that they can get different pieces of legislation passed in a bipartisan way. So I think that is a good counterpoint, or at least it has some substance to it, but it doesn't completely derail the conversation about having term limits. And you see this great example with Dianne Feinstein, who has been in office for so long, is really holding on to her seat and is holding up how the Senate operates. And then also with Ben Cardin. What I find really interesting is there's this kind of passing of the torch that Ben Cardin got his uncle's seat. And sometimes you do see this happening in politics. People hold on to their seat, like Feinstein, until they can find a replacement that they want, that they can shepherd, that they can guide, and make sure that they at least have some influence still because they can go and talk to that new senator or they can make sure that their policies align so that they're not giving their seat away to someone who's radically different. But this is what happens when you don't have term limits. Until people are ready to give up their seat or feel that they are in an optimal position to do so, they don't necessarily get out of office. And that can be extremely dangerous, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, we need to consider that maybe these people are holding up a old way of thinking that is actually damaging to the populace. Imagine if we had a pro-environmentalist revolution in this country, and almost every single person, and when I say revolution, I mean in the way of thinking. Almost every single person in the country is now 100% of environmentalists. They need to get these certain pieces of legislation passed in order to save the United States and not even just us, but the world. And then there was no term limits and these people were allowed to stay in office who were a little bit more corporate oil mongers or anti-environmentalists and they couldn't get them unlodged for one reason or another. And of course that does fall flat because if everybody was an environmentalist, then of course they would probably vote them out of office. But there is this incumbent advantage that is present in America that at the end of the day, the incumbents, they have name recognition. They have voters who have voted for them for a long time. And even if they don't agree on all their policies, they like the proven track record of that person rather than risking someone new. So that environmentalist uprising in the population may not come to its full fruition in government because these people are allowed to stay in office and keep their old views and not necessarily update themselves with the times. And of course, you know, politicians are very slimy. They do pivot and they do talk about new current issues and they bring up their opinions on it. But why would it not be better to have new representatives who are fully adept at these issues that the population truly, truly cares about? But, you know, there is a nice study that this article highlights that really shows the popularity of this idea. 
quote, in March, five out of six Americans in a poll conducted by the University of Maryland School of Public Policy supported a constitutional amendment to impose term limits. The amendment was popular among every demographic group with support from 86% of Republicans, 80% of Democrats, and 84% of Independents. While there has not been a vote since 1995 on the given issue, new life has been brought during this year's speakership negotiations with Speaker McCarthy, indicating that the House may vote on the issue, but no one expects it to pass, end quote. So there's two parts of this to break down here. One, McCarthy did give up some ground to some of the more populist Republicans, Matt Gates, Laura, not Laura Loomer, I forget her name. She's a representative from Colorado. I feel terrible. Oh, Lauren Boebert, that's her name. But yes, they push for these sort of bills to be brought up or at least to have a vote on these issues. And like they said, it probably will not pass. But that's kind of sad when you look at these poll numbers and you see that over 80% of every single political group, liber- not libertarian, sorry, independent, Democrat, Republican, all of them are in favor of term limits. Now, does that mean that it's going to be restricted to two terms or three terms for the House and two terms for the Senate? No, but at least some form of term limit, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's five years, is favored by people. And that is a very broad term. I do acknowledge that. When people say term limit, they have very different ideas. Some people may really like their senator and want them to stay in for 15 years and get a lot of things done. But at the end of the day, it shows there is a opportunity here to bring up this issue. And I think it's very interesting that they frame it in the way of a constitutional amendment rather than it going through Congress. Because the idea that Congress would limit its own power would say to its people, oh, no, 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 we're, we're going to limit how long you can actually stay here. People are not going to be in favor of that. They are not going to be in favor of losing the opportunity to build those connections that they'll have after they get out of Congress to go to different lobbying firms, to maybe go to an executive branch, a regulatory agency, or something of this nature. So that's where this article takes a, not a different tax, because it has been proposed, or at least thought of, in a constitutional amendment frame before. But this is where it turns from describing the issue to so describing a solution, which I kind of agree with and kind of don't. So let's let's jump into how they propose that we do this as a country. Quote, state legislators should therefore vote for a term limit convention regardless of whether they believe the convention will run away, meaning that it will bring up too many other issues for the states to really hone in on the term limit issue. Quote, even though the bill has convention in its title, the convention will never happen. But functionally, it's a tool that could be applied to pressure Congress into proposing term limits. It wouldn't be the first time that this has happened in our history. This 22nd Amendment, which limits the president to two terms, has a congressional response to an effort by several states to hold an Article 5 convention. The amendment, like any future term limit amendments, included a grandfather clause for the current officeholder, who at the time was Harry Truman. So... What we should break down here, and I kind of skipped past it, is they're actually saying here that they should just offer, they should just propose to have this conversation and have this convention, but because of what they plan to do in the convention, which is term limits, then they will 
not actually be able to get to it because Congress will step in and it will do it itself. This is basically them pressuring Congress into taking action because, like I said, Congress doesn't want to limit its own power. So the states obviously have a check on this. They have the ability to ratify the Constitution if they come together at a constitutional convention and get two-thirds of the state's votes. So they propose, hey, let's do term limits. And then as Congress sees this coming, they're like, okay, no, we're not going to let the states control us. We're not going to let the states determine how much power we can have or what the limitations on our ability as Congress will be. So we will impose it upon ourselves in a favorable manner. And that's what they talk about with this grandfather clause that applied to Harry Truman. Quote, likewise, the 17th Amendment, which enshrined the direct election of senators, was proposed by Congress in response to the states that wanted to pass it via a amendment convention. 31 states called for a convention to discuss direct elections of senators, but the convention was never held because Congress preempted action by the states. End quote. So, I think that this is a very interesting tactic. This is saying, okay, we're not actually going to use the levers of power in the state to directly do term limits or to directly impose term limits on our Congress people, but rather we're going to pressure them into doing it themselves. And, you know, of course, this does make a little bit of sense, and it is a very political, little bit of backhanded way of thinking about it. But then they're going to do exactly what they did with Truman. They're going to have a grandfather clause, and then this current regime is going to stay in for another 25 years before it actually matters, and then the term limits are imposed on the new elected officials. So then you have these new elected officials who are being brought in and thrown out in two or whatever the limit is, their amount of years, while the people that were in office before this legislation went into place, they get to stay and live out the term of their current uh, appointment, or they could even make a grandfather clause that, well, we represent the people we can keep running since we are currently in here before we impose these term limits. There's a whole bunch of ways that Congress could do this in their favor. They could add an amendment that says, well, if you're going to kick us out earlier, then we could actually, instead of having a one-year, I believe the current limit is a one-year lobbying break, so if you come from Congress or the House, you have to take a year and not lobby people directly in a subcommittee that you were on, then they could change that so you could go directly into a lobbying firm and start lobbying people that you used to know. And, you know, that could be justified by saying, well, by the time I get out and there's a two-year break, people I knew on the committee are gone, so I have to be able to talk to them right now. Otherwise, I'm of no use to a lobbying firm. You could see how Congress can make this very favorable for themselves. And the ratification of a constitutional amendment by the states is a direct check on the legislator. And honestly, I think the states just need to flex their muscles a little bit. They need to say, hey, you are not the hot stuff in town. You are not the only piece of govern of a governing body. You're not the only ones with power here. And the states need to step up and say, hey, no, we're going to check your power. Even if you do limit yourself, we are going to make it a constitutional amendment that is more favorable for the people. So I do agree that this pressure technique is useful. And if it gets the job done, sure. But I don't think it necessarily goes far enough. Because the beautiful thing about our system is we're decentralized in that we have states that can, in some way or shape or form, actually exert a little bit of power over the federal government. And if we haven't done this, I believe we haven't actually called a convention for, at this point it would be 24 years or so. 
So we need to show Congress and the executive, honestly, that, hey, these states were still around. We're still willing to show and use our powers that are given to us by the Constitution and make sure Congress really thinks about its, its actions because then if the states don't like something and they get used to this ratification process, they could come in and say, oh, no, we're going to get rid of that direct election of senators, and we're actually going to make it so that it comes back to the states like it was back in the day. So flexing the muscle here on the part of the states is important, and I think it will send a very shocking message to Congress. And Maybe they need that. Maybe they need to be shocked just a little bit. All right. Let's jump to our second article, why Democrats are way better at managing their political fringe. So, of course, you know about the squad, you know about AOC. Maybe you don't know about the squad. Maybe I should elaborate. The squad, I believe, is Rashid Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and I believe Cory Bush. But basically, they are very progressive candidates that made their way into the Democratic Party. They created a, congress, a progressive caucus, kind of. Really, it was more of a media play. We're the squad. And they were really pushing the Democrats in a certain direction. They were trying to be fringe. They were really trying to say, hey, no, you're the establishment, and we're bucking against you, even if we agree with most of your policies. But over time, you've kind of seen them get pulled in a little bit. They've been whacked into shape by Nancy Pelosi, or I guess now it would be Hakeem Jeffries. But before it was Nancy Pelosi, really bringing them back into the main party and making sure that they're not out there hurting the Democrats when it comes to different electoral issues and actually making sure that they present a semi-united front. And it's very interesting that this conversation is coming up again now, but it's in the terms of, hey, the Democratic Party is really good at getting its fringes in line, but is that actually a good thing? And this author says yes. They point out something very interesting here in the first quote, so we will jump to it right now. But just I want you to listen and think about this from a very critical point of view, whether you agree or disagree with what they're saying. Quote, the Democratic National Committee will not facilitate a primary process, Sanders, the former chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris, averred. The quote, there will not be a debate stage for Bobby Kennedy, she said. There will be no debating. There will be no debating? This declaration sounded almost un-American. Who could possibly be against robust debate? I wasn't the only one who had that gut response. Quote, I'm not a fan of RFK, and yet one might expect the Democratic Party to be more, mm, I don't know, Democratic, quote, tweeted former Associated Press Washington Bureau Chief Ron Forner, end quote. So, you see what they're doing here. They're saying, okay, we're not going to have a debate. We are not going to allow RFK to even speak in the presence of the president in a angry, antagonistic fashion because he's not a real candidate. That's basically what they're saying. He's, he's not a real candidate. We're not even going to consider him. It's just Joe Biden. Joe Biden is our nominee. And if you want to challenge him, I'm sorry, but it doesn't mean anything. That's essentially what they're getting at here. And it's extremely, I don't want to say it's extremely scary because at the end of the day, our system is not just a pure democracy. It is a republic. And there are different institutions that were set up in order to ensure that it wasn't just a pure populist vote. 
And there are benefits to that. There are negatives to that. And one of the positives is people who actually are involved in the political process, who are actually on the ground understanding the realities of Washington and are have to compromise sometimes and have a better understanding of how to do that than the average population are able to make sometimes better decisions. I know that may sound a little bit elitist, but if you imagine that the random 18-year-old who is not involved in politics and just gets told to vote for somebody by their parents or their friends, do you really want them directly controlling what's happening inside the United States? Because at that point, we might as well get rid of representatives and we just have an absolute direct democracy where they just, everybody just votes on the issue. We electronically tally it and going forward, that's how we do it. No, we have a system where we have representatives who have to build up friends, connections, and they understand the political intricacies a little bit more than we do as the average person, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. So this definitely seems like it's part of that system of people who have a better understanding of what's going on. They're, they're not going to let RFK run. They're going to stick with Joe Biden. But it does feel kind of false to not at least entertain him and to outright say, no, 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 we're not going to have a debate. We're not going to allow him to run. It does feel there's something inside me that when I hear that, it just makes me cringe a little bit. And I can't necessarily put my finger right on it because, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with a direct democracy. But when somebody can gain as much support, even a little bit of support, especially with what they did to Bernie Sanders, where he gained a lot of support, and they can outright suppress them and say, no, you're not going to get the nomination, or we're going to do some funny business so you don't. It feels a little bit wrong. And another part of this article that the author was talking about, it, it really got underneath my skin when I first read it. Her reaction to what they said at first, which is there's not going to be a debate. It was basically my reaction when I read this. I was a little bit taken aback. Quote, the more I thought about it, the more something else occurred to me. While it sounds almost scandalous for the political party to essentially rig the nomination, that's exactly what they should be doing. Finally, someone said it. We may live in a representative democracy, but political parties like military units, corporations, and families are not democracies. Indeed, they don't or could not function well if they tried to be. Political parties are private clubs. As such, the party decides, or at least it used to. Whether this vetting is done in a smoke-filled back room or some less carcinogenic location, we were better off when strong political parties, elites, and bosses served this vital gatekeeping function. End quote. And maybe that's the part that really gets to me when she talks about the elites and the bosses and then also that term gatekeeping because I heard it in reference a few years ago to I believe it was Carlos Maza or it was another person from Vox who said that basically journalists are gatekeepers. They decide what kind of information gets out to the public, what information is worth giving to the public. And that kind of mentality does scare me a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. And the idea that the elites... They get to decide. They know what's best purely because they're elites is what scares me. Rather than my previous statement, which is these people, they understand the mechanisms of government, but they're not doing it because or they're not implementing their will simply because they want to. It's because they are looking out for the best interest of their population rather for the be than for the best interest of the party, which is posed here. And maybe that's a really fine line, and maybe I need to think that through a little bit more. But 
it just it feels really, really odd when you have a journalist outright saying, yes, the elites should decide. Journalism is supposed to push back. It's supposed to fight these narratives. It's trying to say to the elites, no, you do not get a free pass. You do not get to sit there and tell us who we are allowed to nominate or who we're allowed to vote for, basically. And it feels really odd when it comes from, well, this kind of article, which is, you know, this comes from, I believe, the Daily Beast. This is supposed to push back against government. It's supposed to be a little bit more progressive, a little bit more liberal. And I normally come to them to find my anti-elitist, anti-corporate government talk. And you don't necessarily see that in this one. And it kind of scares me a little bit. And I do get it. Biden's probably the best candidate. Or I take that back. Biden's probably the most palatable candidate for the Democratic Party. And as president, if he wants to run, they're probably not going to push back because he has some internal support from different factions. But it just, it feels so icky, and I don't like it. But it really does speak to the fact how the Democrats have a strong control over their party and how they're really able to rein in the populist. And the last paragraph or so of this column really highlights that. Quote, to the point of this column, the establishment in the Democratic establishment, yes, I know, they said establishment in two sentences referring to the same thing. The establishment in the Democratic establishment has been more aggressive and effective at fighting and co-opting populist insurgents on the left. It hasn't always been pretty. Debbie Wasterman Schultz was forced to step down as head of the Democratic National Committee after leaked emails showed that the DNC was pushing an anti-Bernie Sanders article. And after then, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took on the squad for voting against a border bill aid. Rep. Ocasio-Cortez of New York suggested Pelosi was, let's just say, R-word, for signaling women of color. Call them heavy-handed elites if you like, but Sanders did not wrest control of the Democratic Party from Hillary Clinton. And unlike the GOP, where the inmates run the asylum, the squad hasn't yet come close to taking over the Democratic Party, end quote. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to you. Whether you like the idea of populists coming in, being a bull in the china shop, and really breaking things apart, breaking the system, and bringing about a new order in the party, then you know, you're going to have a different opinion on how this goes. Now, if you're looking at this from a purely political party strength point of view, the Democrats have a stronger hold over their party, which is dangerous to some Republicans. Because even if all their Democratic representatives don't necessarily agree, they will fall in line and vote with the party when they need to. And if the Republicans don't have that, we had four Republicans peel off from the voting of the, I believe it's the Limit Save Grow Act. That could be catastrophic in the future if it turns out to be five, maybe six Republicans peel off when the Republicans need to put together a strong piece of legislation or at least try to get something passed. And, you know, at the end of the day, got through, it's not a big deal, but that could be a limiting factor in the future. The Democrats fall in line much more easily, and the Republicans, they're not very unified, and that may be a problem for them going into 2024. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Let's get to our last article. Really, really quick one here. Comes from Daily Cost. Cognitive bias boot camp. The frequency illusion. So you've probably heard of this before. And it describes the idea that when you buy something, when you hear something, that the idea is now in the front of your mind. 
and you see or hear more of it. So if you buy a red car, per se, then, hey, you go out on the roads and you notice, oh my gosh, there's so many more red cars. What happened? I got a red car, now everybody else has a red car? Or is it just that time of year when red cars are really popular? And this is how the article describes it. Quote, sometimes folks will refer to this as something along the lines of the red car or pick a color car syndrome. You buy a red car and suddenly you notice many other red cars on the road. Wow, where did all these red cars suddenly come from? It's the tendency that we have upon recently learned learning something or buying something or first noticing something to start noticing it everywhere as if it's a new thing. In fact, it's probably been there like that all along, end quote. And why I bring this up in the context of a normally pretty political show. One, I always try to branch out and have some science articles every once in a while. I be- We did one about fission or, I believe, fusion energy a long time ago. So, you know, it's always nice to understand the psychology of the human brain. I thought this was a pretty interesting tidbit to really understand how your brain works. And then you might even notice it yourself. The fact that this is brought up to you may make it so that you see it more often. So you actually have a frequency illusion about the frequency illusion. If you understand what I'm getting at here, you may notice yourself doing this more often because now you understand what it is, which is actually something very cutesy that the author, I believe, points out in a very cool way at the very beginning. Or at least they say, oh, well, now you may notice the fact that you've been doing this for quite some time. But why I think it's important in politics is... Maybe you hear a new talking point from somebody, or maybe you think of something, you think of something yourself. Maybe you don't actually think of it yourself, but you've been hearing it here and there, and then it kind of gets lodged in your brain, and then you think it's an original thought of your own. Not saying you can't think originally, but a lot of ideas do come from outside places, and you kind of sit on them, they sit in your subconscious until you formulate them and think about them a little bit. But you may hear some of these talking points, and then... Over the next week, you may be like, oh my goodness, everybody's talking about this. It is a brand new talking point. And I believe the first thing that came to mind when I was reading this article was a few weeks ago. I believe it was actually a month ago at this point. I used, in a lot of different podcasts, I talked about incentives. The incentive structure that is placed in our government. And I noticed when I was listening to other podcasts from people on the left and the right, it, there was a lot of talk about incentives. And looking back on that, I was kind of like, wow, okay, maybe I'm hitting something or maybe I accidentally picked up on this conversation. And with this idea of what's going on with the frequency illusion, it's probably that it was there the whole time. It's just that I had finally found something where I thought it was pertinent and I was using it in my own way and trying to explain through the different incentives that government has. And then since I had brought it up, I started hearing it more and more often. So I think it's a very interesting thing and it's something you got to keep in mind when you're going through a new idea and you start hearing it everywhere. Don't let confirmation bias tell you, oh, my gosh, I'm 100 percent right. I'm hearing it from everybody now. Maybe it's just a talking point that's been in the background for a while. You brought it up and now you hear it a little bit more. Or maybe, you know, at the end of the day, you're ahead of the pack and people are just following you. That is always possible as well. But just keep it in the back of your mind. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from One Green Planet. Take a look at what's on the menu at the Raccoon Drive-Thru. So... Just to start here, I don't believe feeding raccoons people food is advisable. 
but it, it sure is cute. Quote, the video showcases a cute little raccoon perched on a windowsill, eagerly munching on a bowl of Cheerios that was being fed to it by the person behind the camera, end quote. And, you know, maybe this is the start of domestication of raccoons. I don't know. But this little guy seems to be a regular customer at this point. Quote, the video progresses. It's clear that the raccoon is completely at ease, and the two of them seem to have developed a unique bond, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this guy eating the Cheerios, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the Spotify podcast. It's also on Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, and you can find the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip where we post links directly to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.